Hello, and welcome to show 22 of All Back to Bowie's. This show is called So Wiped Out with Things as They Are, Exploring the Common Wheel. Uh, this show is electric, I think. Its central interview is between Peter Arn and Robin McAlpine. Robin McAlpine of the uh, Jimmy Reed Foundation and now of the Common Wheel. Uh, Robin McAlpine is an extraordinary force of energy and thought and enthusiasm and he kind of went through the year like a dose of salts um, with his passion and his thoughtfulness as well, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, and I think Peter and him have just a really fascinating discussion about what's possible. It's set up beautifully by Laura Eaton-Lewis returning to the yurt, this time um, speaking about common sense. And it's a really interesting provocation, I think, which sets up the notion of what we believe to be politically possible. Hector McInnes just sings beautifully. I just... I was absolutely knocked for six by Hector, and he's really, really worth checking out. And to put the cherry on a very, very delicious socially democratic cake of optimism, Jenny Lindsay uh, revisited the yurt and gave us just a top-notch poetic performance as well. So this is a real corker. So sit back and enjoy. So wiped out with things as they are, exploring the common wheel. Hello. Fantastic. It's always good. It's good when you, you uh, answer back. It's fantastic. It means we've got a lively audience. Um, hello, uh, my name's David Gregg. I, I'm one of the uh, so-called self-styled pretty things, um, as is Peter Arnott, who we'll be meeting later. And um, welcome to All Back to Bowie's. A All Back to Bowie's uh, started because, if you remember, way back in uh, uh, May or March, I think it was, at the Brit Awards, David Bowie um, assumed the uh, corporeal form of Kate Moss to uh, say, Scotland, stay with us. And so we took him up on that invitation uh, to stay with him, and here we are in David Bowie's Manhattan rooftop yurt. His guest yurt. Um, and we've been in residence here for a month, enjoying the sounds of Manhattan. You can hear David's actually having a bit of work done on his kitchen just now. Um, <clears throat> every show is podcast, and uh, for the podcast listeners, I always like to just describe the vibe so they get a feel for it because they can hear your voices, hear you laughing and everything. It's nice for them to know. So at the moment, we've got about two, three, four hundred people, I think, and they're all um, gathered around the lightning bolt swimming pool um, on the scatter cushions. So that's good. I can see uh, we've got... Is, it, is that Iggy Pop in again? Iggy's in again. Hi, Iggy. I can see... Javier Bardem is in as well. So it's a big crowd uh, from downtown Manhattan. Here to find out more um, of what we uh, uh, wanted to explore 
the interesting things about the referendum debate. So that's not the stuff which is all the yaboo and the, you know, I say this and you say that, but the interesting stuff. Um, and today we've got some fabulously interesting stuff coming up later from uh, Robin McAlpine, who's going to talk about the common wheel. But before then, I think it's really important to recognise that Scotland is um, divided right now. And I think people are arguing, people are fighting, they're talking over the big, big issue of the day. Um, I've even heard uh, the big, big issue of the day, which is, um, is it Bowie or is it Bowie? Um, there's going to be a service of reconciliation about this later on in the run. But we've been doing a, a referendum all the way through, asking the audience uh, their opinion on this, because we think it's important to know. And we've been keeping a running tally. So every day we do the referendum, so we're just about to do that. One small thing. Does any, before you vote, does anybody feel they need more information? Um, I would put... Yes? Ah, well, yeah, that is extraordinary that you should say that because, no, it really is because actually the more information I was going to provide was that, the, uh, uh, that I think it comes from the Gaelic buoy and in fact it should be David Bowie, but that was not on the referendum. <laughs> I'm really sorry to say. It's the option that everyone wanted. But, so we're stuck with is it Bowie or is it Bowie? So here we go. Uh, do you agree that David Bowie is pronounced Bowie? Raise your hands. Okay. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 5, 6, 7, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46. 46. 46. Um, uh, and a do, but do say no. David Bowie is pronounced Bowie. Interesting. This is this is one of the biggest turnouts for for about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, seven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-four. Thirty-four. So uh, at the moment, uh, anybody undecided? Well, decide. We're fed up waiting. Right. Okay. Um, so, the, uh, uh, well, you can find out later in the run what the actual result is, but at the moment I would say it's a big lead for Bowie, even despite the fact that it's Bowie. So, <laughs> uh, we'll move now to, uh, swiftly to our task. Every day we have a task for the audience. We don't have a lot of time for, in for audience interaction, despite uh, so far you lot being some of the rowdiest, but the... Um, <laughs> But, so what we do to get everybody involved is we ask you all to look about your person for any bit of paper that you have, any bus ticket, any receipt, any flyer that somebody's given you, anything that you've got. And also uh, to find a pen, maybe if you don't have a pen, maybe somebody you're with has a pen or someone next to you. Um, and every day we ask the audience to complete a sentence um, and to write it out on the little scrap of paper and we collect them in to make a sort of crowdsourced poem or audience statement at the end of the show. And um, today, in recognition that the common wheel is an attempt to find practical ideas for um, a, a new Scotland, we thought that we would ask you for your practical ideas. So, 
the sentence I'd like you to complete oh, during the course of the show is my, my practical idea to improve Scotland is dot 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 okay now the only thing I would say about this is it is as well as your chance to be political and pragmatic and to uh, explore you know important thoughts you may have you are also allowed to be frivolous whimsical comical imaginative creative um, it's your chance to respond to that sentence however you like and also think about it during the course of the show as as all the stuff that we have is going on and uh, you can reflect back to it and we'll collect it in so my practical idea to improve scotland is dot 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 um very good i think without then further ado we can begin uh, we always have music, as is, as is appropriate, at, at David Bowie's house. We always have music. And today we have an absolutely wonderful singer-songwriter for you. Um, uh, he's absolutely fantastic. If you happen to be passing through Noidart in the next few weeks, you can catch him. Also, he's playing London, so he's sort of doing both extremes of population density there. Please welcome to the stage Hector McInnes. yet to share a stage with anyone where the mic stand that's correct for me is correct for them. I was waiting to be asked on stage with sort of Kylie or Prince or something like that. Not yet. So I wrote a song for a play a couple of years ago about land reform, which uh, don't you're all right. It's, that never gets a big whoop. Um, but in the play, I don't know if any of you are aware that uh, Reforesting Scotland have a scheme called A Thousand Huts, okay, which is supposed to be a sort of initiative for getting folk to kind of go out into wilderness environments and kind of inhabit it by building a small hut there, which I suppose is a Scandinavian behaviour. And the character in the play that this song was about uh, was doing that. But in his mind, all the thousand huts were kind of all together in one place as this sort of uh, ramshackle, kind of homemade shanty town. Uh, so, it's a thousand huts. Thousand huts, 
Hector McInnes, ladies and gentlemen. That's brilliant. Uh, we always have a provocation at Bowie's, which is a shortish thought, uh, something to direct us maybe into the way of thinking for, the, for, for when we get to the interview. Today, our provocation is uh, from one of our regular contributors. It is from Laura Cameron Lewis. Please welcome to stage Laura Cameron Lewis. see if I can find a way to do this so that I can scroll and talk at the same time. Okay. So I thought it was time that we face some facts about this debate. And today I want to talk about sense, the problem with common sense. And I'm going to try and give you some facts. Like many of you, I don't make big decisions without weighing up the risks, which means doing my research and finding out some unmediated facts, the raw data. And I'm a bit of a geek about these things. So I looked at what both of the campaigns were saying. And Whatever you might say about the character of certain voices in the Yes campaign, it would be difficult to deny the surfeit of di diverse voices and the solid referencing of data and independent sources that they're coming up with. Some common sense sources like the Financial Times and some excellent new media journalists have dug up raw data from Westminster and Holyrood and shown that the facts have been, in many cases, twisted and uses facts often are to prop up one side of the argument. So, as you do when you're being robust, you work against your own bias. So I searched for more data, assuming that maybe I was just in an information bubble of my own making that suited my beliefs. And I tweeted UK together four separate times to ask for their raw data and the sources for their economic assertions. And I got tumbleweed. And so I Facebooked and put out a call, massive call to everyone. Can anybody send me this, please? And specifically ask people that I knew were involved in the um, Better Together campaign. And I got tumbleweed, and it was strange. And I, and I thought, why, why, why can't I find one link to data 
that supports this. Um, and you have to assume that if the data was there, then they'd come forward with it, because that's what everyone's calling for. We're calling for the facts. Now, the world works in such a way that facts aren't strictly necessary if you have common sense on your side, because prejudice trumps evidence. And um, what is common sense but a sense of prejudicial judgment and predicated on common or accepted thinking? So in other words, common sense is a belief in a proper that does not deviate from how things have always been. Common sense is context dependent and if, for example, your context is part of a subjugated or even abusive relationship, your sense of reality and your judgment are entirely conditioned by the party whose needs dominate your environment. Those who are proper are those who are already in power. So I watched with fascination the discussion here on Tory Scotland last week and among some of the panellists I couldn't help but notice a certain posture, a way of communicating and it was the same attitude that I'd encountered when I engaged in a debate with a former Bank of England economist. There were no facts, there's no data, but the voice is confident, they're relaxed, they take up more space than others around them and they pronounce statements of assumption and opinion as if they're true by virtue of the fact it's them that's saying it. So the market manages itself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where, sorry, 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 scroll, scroll, scroll. The market manages itself, profit-driven motivations make things more efficient and productive. Uh-huh. Animal spirits, yes, yes. Competition is what makes excellence and only the wealthy are richest companies and individuals can create the conditions for that wealth to trickle down to those at the bottom. For someone in Loch Kelly, you worry that you'll lose your job if Amazon pulls out of Dunfermline. So that's a dread thought. And the thought of having no money might lead you to assume that those who know about making wealth and keeping it must know the answers to keep the economy productive for everyone. Hang on, you see there's a problem. Ewan Morrison was talking last week about how he thought these young actives were talking naively about proposals like the common wheel as if they were something new. He said he didn't understand, they didn't understand that socialism had a long history and had been proven not to work. So let's just come back to the facts. Ewan is a self-confessed ex-trot and he was actually referring to communist socialism and despite having a socialist economic access, the access of uh, the sorry the governance access embodies the extremes of authoritarianism so it's a dictatorship in practice so a socialist monetary and industrial policy doesn't work because stalin of course stalin no stalinism doesn't work ewan because stalin the Commonweal is about participative governance, the polar opposite of dictatorship. So back to the facts, the system of governance we currently have in the UK is moving ever closer to the dictatorship end of the access, and those human rights you've got, you'll not be needing them. You'll not be needing them. So the Tory, Tory party are now talking about taking away the human rights. And um, thanks to the UK government signing up to the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, your multinational corporations are now above the law and can pretty much do anything they like to protect their interests. Again, those are the facts. Socialist pro policies have been proven to work perfectly well if, on your governance axis, you organise your society as a participative liberal democracy, much as is in evidence in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland. Oh, hang on! Iceland! is a financial disaster. No, no, no. Back to the facts. 
Iceland was a country that refused to bail out its banks. So the government has no debt to default on, and look how that's worked out for them. Iceland has the fastest economic recovery in all of Europe. And here in the UK, we're in our seventh year of economic depression and it might feel like common sense that we need to tighten our belts to get out of this mess and that businesses can't afford to employ people or pay big taxes but the reality is that government spending isn't the same as personal spending just as a micro business doesn't operate under the same rules as a multinational like amazon so if they work why do we not already have policies like those proposed in the commonweal we could have universal economic measures such as a citizen's income that would value all the invisible work of women, the disabled, the underemployed. So why don't we? Ask the Tories. Thatcher's government researched the possibility in the 70s and they discovered it's actually cheaper than the current benefits system. It's cheaper, it's more efficient, so why don't we have it? Perhaps it's because it would show that the conservative mindset is based on a myth and who knows where that might lead. Real change, maybe. Animal spirits, competition, higher financial reward for higher performance. That makes us stronger, makes us all strive more, yes? Except that it doesn't. The facts about the biggest myth of our times. Financial incentives don't motivate us to perform better. In fact, financial reward makes us perform more badly. This truth has been repeatedly proven in experiments for over 60 years now. So that is an undisputable fact. But because of the prevailing common narrative doesn't accept that we might be motivated by something other than financial incentives. The truth remains unaccepted by those who have the privilege of running our boardrooms and our governments. You can read all about it in the academic journals and it's brilliantly described in Daniel Pink's book, drive the surprising truth about what motivates us, I really recommend you read it. But I'll give you a wee summary. Many economists and sociologists have proven that humans are not wealth maximizing robots. Homo economus is a fiction. Bruno Fay, Decky, Mark Lepper, David Green, Mihaly Chil Chin, oh gosh, far too hungover to read this one. <coughs> Proves that we are intrinsically motivated purpose maximizers, not extrinsically motivated profit maximizers. And in fact, and it's only when we're below the poverty line that the anxiety of not surviving motivates financial reward at huge cost to our health and social well-being. Economists and social scientists are agreed that as long as humans are paid a meaningful amount for their labor, i.e. their survival is not in question, that financial rewards only have a negative effect on their behavior. It makes them perform less well. You might think, ah, but we have a high standard of living in this country, so you know, it would be different. Well, the same, these economists did the same experiments in India. Cross-sectional group of economists led by Dan Ailey, two um, PhDs from MIT, one Carnegie Mellon scholar, and one from the University of Chicago, conducted research for the American Federal Reserve System and carried out the same experiments in India. They gave three levels of financial reward three randomized groups and measured resulting performance. So one level was the equivalent of one day's pay, the next level equivalent of two weeks pay, and then the next level the equivalent of five months pay. They discovered that those who received a medium level of reward didn't perform better than those receiving the small reward, and the biggest shock of all, those that received the biggest level of pay performed the worst. 
by far and away. To test the thesis again, the LSE took 11 Nobel laureates and they got them to analyze corporate pay performance plans and they also found that financial incentives result in negative overall performance. That is undisputable fact, that individuals taking large payouts, companies making massive profits perform worse than those who take less money out of the system. Not what we've come to expect, is it? The experiments these scientists did concluded that our thinking about competitives, competitiveness is back to front. That people and companies perform better when there's no financial incentive and when they're motivated by purpose. In other words, for the intrinsic benefit of doing that thing. Altruism isn't a utopian fiction. It's scientifically proven to work. Animal spirits. Except that's another thing. Scientifically, in evolutionary terms, the survival of the fittest analogy has been massively misunderstood to mean that the strongest and most dominant animal survives. But what Darwin and his antecedents discovered was not that at all, that the physical body is actually inseparable from the social body and that a broken system results in extinction. You may have noticed that animals are socially altruistic. Anyone that's ever had more than one cat in an ongoing living situation, or as I like to call it, a civic microcosm of catness, um, can attest to how these apparently solitary, predatory, selfish creatures actually take care of each other and find a social balance that benefits all. So the lie is not only that humans are supposedly programmed to be selfish and seek financial reward, the lie is that we need paternal work corporations to create economic growth and job roles for us. McKinsey and co management consultants, famous for their ruthless efficiency and rationalization, have measured that in the USA only 30% of job growth is in algorithmic types of work, so that's factory process-based jobs. That means a whopping 70% of new economic growth is down to heuristic work, that's creative work to you and me. Work that's done intrinsically for enjoyment, best using imagination, vision, um, innovation, sorry, lost my place again. Uh, um, that's 70% of the US economy, three times the size of the bit we traditionally think of as being a job. What does that mean for the UK? Well, we have largely similar types of industries, so we can expect that 70% of our jobs growth will be in the creative, innovative jobs. But we continue to believe that we cannot invest in these areas. Um, or provide a universal benefit system that would increase innovation, purpose and performance among those who are not in the formal labour market. We continue to believe that a rebalancing of the increasingly extreme wealth inequality would mean economic demise, when in fact it's been scientifically proven that such extreme financial rewards significantly damage performance and, one might conclude, the economy. So the Commonweal vision isn't a pipe dream. It's robust, it's scientific, it's evidence-based. You can't rely on common sense when, when the question and opportunity we have is extraordinary. We have one shot to take power to revise the systems that don't work for us anymore. Rarely does that happen without the entire collapse of an empire. And we have the chance to do that in peacetime, with no bloodshed, just a good deal of work. And we can be sure that people will do brilliantly and with gusto that work, because that work is purpose. The most fundamental thing we've been led to believe about the market is wrong, and the evidence paints a picture of a functioning economy based on human purpose and not driven by increasing financial reward. So please, let's not be afraid of change, for the change, change is all there is. 
and there will be change regardless of which way the vote goes. So let's not wait for the empire to collapse and centuries of dark ages to unfold before someone invents a better wheel. Thank you. Thanks very much, Laura. So that was great. And now we'll uh, get to Peter and Robin. Uh, we'll just rearrange the chairs. Marvellous. <clears throat> Oops, I think. Yep. Yeah. A little more room. Excellent. Thank you. Well, yes. The, 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 what you've just seen is uh, is this is what a society organised by playwrights would look like. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, yes, I, I wanted to. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Laura, for that. Um, I, I, I try. I'm, I'm not very bright, and I was thinking about thinking about the interview. So I was thinking that what you're saying, I think, and this is what I want to start with Robin on, is everything you think is true isn't, and everything, every assumption you make about how the economy works, how politics works, isn't true. Um, so uh, would that be a, a reasonable uh, way to start, Robin? Um, no, not <laughs> okay, the things good. that you believe. Because this is the interesting thing, and I've got almost nothing to add. That was brilliant. This is exactly right. Um, we know all sorts of things which we don't believe. So we know, for example, that um, it is having a local economy that makes your town alive, that makes things wealthy. We know that. We, we, we intuitively understand that. If your high street closes in favour of out-of-town developments, your high street dies and wealth goes. We know that, but we've been trained to believe things that we know not to be true. That's the trick. We believe, we know that if they open a supermarket, it'll close things down. But we've been trained to believe that's still good. And I had a fascinating discussion. I live in a small town. I had a fascinating discussion with uh, dry cleaners that was just down below my house. And I was in chatting to the moon, and she was moaning about the local greengrocers because the prices were 10, 15% more expensive than they would have been in Lidl's. And why couldn't she get a big Morrison's just outside the town? And I said, why do you want to work in Morrison's? And she said, I don't, I own a dry cleaners. And I said, yeah, you do know that Morrison's do dry cleaning. She said, no, but, 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 but. <laughs> yeah. I said, have you thought this through? Can you understand that you're in, what you know to be correct about what's good for you and what you've been trained to believe is good for right. you and in conflict? Um, we know, we do fundamentally understand that you don't actually get progress by tearing each other's eyes out but we've been trained to believe otherwise, and that's the thing. It's rediscovering what we know. Okay, it's rediscovering what we know. Um, I, 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 this is a book that which Robin has, has put together, which is, um, first of all, a thing of extraordinary beauty, I think, it has to be said. I'm actually holding it upside down. You see, that's, a ba- that's a balance. I think your treasury tags through the wrong way, but... That, it, <laughs> anyway, he's holding up his proper copy. I mean, mine's ruined because I've been scribbling all over it. Um, but the thing, the, the, but the thing is that the, there's a basic con- the basic conflict, it seems to me, that underlines the book is two not new ideas within the existing way of thinking, but a new way of thinking. And uh, what Robin sums it up, I think, in in, in in a very interesting way, which I'd like you to expand on, um, that there is the me first vision of society and economy, and there is the all of us first vision. And it says between those two very simple, appealingly simple ideas. So could you first of all expand on what you mean by 
the me first society. I think we think we probably all know, so you can probably keep it fairly brief. Well, it's very straightforward. Is the, um, the UK has got one political philosophy, and actually, I'm not sure we do know it. I'm not sure we're quite aware of the extent to which the only philosophy that we have for social and economic development in Britain is based on conflict. The concept that if you put two people in a room, whoever comes out alive must be for the best. Um, yeah. That philosophy underpins almost everything. We're not aware of it. So, for example, planning policy. Whoever can control the land must be the best, even if it damages right. high streets. Whoever can control the banks must be the best. Um, but even things that we think are, are good, such as um, meritocracy at school. Why? Why should we set exams which losers will suffer for from the rest of their life and winners will benefit for from the rest of their life? This concept of conflict, of uh, a conflict model of social economic development has absorbed everything. And I, I'm not sure that we do know it's there. Yeah, because again, it reminds me somewhat of uh, uh, the neo-Darwinian idea. Sorry, I'm getting pretentious again. The neo-Darwinian idea that... that he who survives must be the best. Laura was referring to it earlier on, but um, that, but actually we know that things don't really work that. But but the all of all of us first. It sounds to our value-free power always wins, power always best ears. That sounds almost peculiar. Um, yeah. So what so, so what what do you mean by all of us first? Um, it's think of it as a percentage. Think about going up the way of the graph. The way that we have things in the UK is government stops there. Okay. Government stops there and everything is a fight. Okay. Now that's not correct. Okay. Because um, that's this idea of if we all tear each other's eyes out then the best occurs. But that's not actually how the best occurs. And I, I mean it was, it was a very good explanation. I used the example of cats as well. Um, if that was true... <laughs> I use this all the time. I've got a cat called Fudge. She's a psychopath, um, <laughs> but she's a sweetheart. And I watched the Horizon documentary about what cats do when you're not watching them. You know the one thing that cats don't do when you're not watching them is fight. Because cats are incredibly dangerous killing machines. And if two cats get in a fight, the winner will die too. Cats evolved to avoid fights. And all that hissing and spitting and arch, uh, back arching, that's avoidance mechanisms. Cats don't fight. And when they do, they usually die. And this is the point. Actually, 80-90% of competition isn't really competition because where we actually compete on is the last little 10%. And the point is, where is the base? Where do you start the competition from? Do you start the competition from the bottom? Or do you see, actually, 80% of our interests are shared, 90% of our interests are shared, and it's mm. only the wee bit in the top that we compete on. And incidentally, I'll give you a specific concrete example. Please. In the Nordic economies, um, they take an industry sector... And they say, well, all the players in this industry sector will eventually be com in competition. It's a private um, sector economy. However, they're all working from a, a, in a similar market. And actually, 80% of their interests are the same. And so what the state says there is not, let's just get out all together and just let it be. Let it rip. Whoever's the biggest wins. What they say is, actually, if we create... The, you all need a certain kind of infrastructure. You all need a certain kind of skill levels from the economy. You're all needing a similar level of connectivity and supply chain and interaction. Let's get that as right as we possibly can for all of you, mm. putting all of your interests first. Right. And we pull out at the last 10%, the last bit at the end, when you've created that successful environment, then get out. Because, you know, Dewan Morrison's worried about socialism. He's wrong. Nobody's really tried it. Let's focus on communism. State communism didn't work because they wouldn't let that last 10% go. So it's about saying create, put, create the conditions which put all of our interests first. 
right. and then leave us to be me first for a much, much smaller part of our lives. Well, one thing that is incredibly exciting for me about Commonweal is although, as you can hear, Robin is a man in a hurry and, and, and a man who wants to get his ideas out immediately, but they're based on some things, I think they're based on things that we all know. We all seem, I know, I think, that when we're at work, the person who's fighting, fighting, biting, scratching is a menace. It's not the leader. We all know this. We know, we know that the model of society we are told is how society works isn't really how society works. And what's great about this is it starts from those principles and asks really, really simple questions like, what kind of health service do you want? And then it goes, okay, how do we do that? Um, now, my, my concern, I suppose, is, um, is a bit like the old Irish joke. Um, or the old joke about Irishmen, I should say, which is that you know when you ask directions in Ireland, you, it gets, ah, oh, I wouldn't start from here if I was you. And that's, in a sense, is the, my, my next question is, is um, say, first of all, is all this predicated on winning a yes vote so we do have something of a blank slate? And if so, if there's a yes vote, what step one do you feel towards achieving the kind of vision that you're talking about? It's not predicating a yes vote. Um, for Scotland's sake, we need the yes vote to implement it. But one of the things that I've said is there's nothing here which isn't a restatement of or, or a new statement of a whole load of things which have worked across Europe, across the world. Right. In fact, that's the point. That what we did here was, because the left sometimes has a bit of a, a problem with credibility, largely because the right-wing media say we've got a problem with credibility, we thought we'd jump through a hoop. And so nothing in the book, I mean, and this, this is based in 50 detailed policy papers, nothing in the book has not been tried somewhere and shown right. to work. That was right. one of our rules. We set very strict rules. If we can't show it worked somewhere, don't put it in. So everything in there has worked, right. and, and that's the point. But um, the, I don't worry about blank slates, because it's a complete myth. I use the language sometimes. Okay. There's never blank slates. Um, maybe Adam and Eve. We all <laughs> exist in a world which has been created, and we all move forward from there. Um, the, the, I, I don't worry about limits. People worry about their limits. Limits are great. Um, limits are good for people because they make you force your way at them. I was in a, uh, it was the Latvian Gallery of Modern Art. And I walked, I love modern art. I walked all the way around during all the years of Soviet o occupation when there was quite a lot of limit put on the artistic um, create. There were brilliant pictures pushing and working away at the limits of this, of this oppression of what they could do. And then you get 1990, they, they, you know, you get the fall of the Berlin Wall, Russia goes, and it was all rubbish. It looked like every other shitty art school everywhere. <laughs> there was no limits to what they could do. So the point was that the ability to say, this is where we are now, fix it. It's yes. better than saying, here's an imaginary empty field, build something. So fixing things is good. Starting with what you have is good. And you asked, what's the thing? What's the one thing? Yeah. Stop believing there's one thing. That's the Westminster right. illness. Right. The belief that there's a magic button. If there's a magic button, you press the magic button, it fixes everything else. And the magic button is almost always deregulate, cut taxes, cut public spending. If you do that thing, everything else will fix itself. This is complete garbage, utter shite. It's just not true. Right. The only thing that matters is everything you do. Everything you do. Okay. That's all that matters. When you make a decision, it will, do, it will tend towards one of two outcomes. Every time. It will okay. turn to an outcome that is more divisive or more um, more me firstish, or it'll be more all of us firstish. Every decision. And okay. the point of this is, every time you make a decision, you see, where's this one take us? Where's the next one take us? And the idea that you park them all in little boxes and you let them all manage themselves like micromanaged, um, just like, like middle management, 
all working away in a, in a strange, pointless circle. That's not really the important thing. The important thing is to take every one of those decisions and say, how do they, how do they contribute to the outcome? Right. So there's not one thing. It's about saying, this is what we want to achieve. Let's just do that every day. So I'm looking at the graphic and saying, okay, <laughs> we are, we are, this is the idea of the fulcrum, it seems to me, that every single decision we make goes one way or the other. And it reminds me of something, um, and I'm, just, I'm speaking entirely off the top of my head at the moment, um, but it reminded me of something, uh, Raymond Williams, great teacher, um, great, uh, great writer, who I had the privilege to sneak into a seminar when I was 18, when I was far too young and he threw me out, it was fine. Um, but a great man, a great, great thinker of, of, uh, of the left, a uh, uh, Second World War generation of the left. He, at the end of the, his book, Culture and Society, he talks about how every idea we have about everything either contains the seeds of life or the seeds of death. And that, that, that there are ideas which bring with them the possibility of more life. And there are ideas that bring with them the possibility of death. And it, it, I'm almost embarrassed to, to look at the way the referendum is going and say, well, look, it's like, it, it, so, I mean, I, I apologize to those of you who are, who, are, who are voting no, but it feels like death to me. It feels like the end of possibility, that the only, the only thing, the only value is no value. The only value is keeping things as they are because we're doing all right just about, aren't we? And maybe some of us are, maybe some of us aren't. But in the more general point, what worries me about this, and I apologize for the length of the question, is that, it, that I am both of those people. That in a sense, there's, there's the optimist and there's the pessimist. There's the, they're both me. They're both me every morning. And that some mornings I wake up and think, we're really going to do this. And some mornings I wake up and go, nah, you're kidding. Of course we're not. We never do. We always screw it up. Human, and in a sense, uh, and, and is this project, um, well, first of all, is the, is the referendum vote really about how we are, which side of bed we get out of in the morning, and is, or is the Commonweal Project, again, ultimately about which side of bed are we getting out of this morning? Um, I, that, no, 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 that's, a, that's a, a, a question I like a lot, because um, one of my favourite quotes is that it's not Alexander Pope, I got it mixed up, I can't remember who the hell it is off the top of my head, now, but it's a great quote, um, do I contradict myself? Very well, I am large, I, contra- I contain multitudes. So this it idea, rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. It's this idea. Um, do I contradict very well? I am large. I contain multitudes. Nobody's one thing or the other. It's mad. This is, right. this is another one of the giant tricks of neoliberalism of the of the current world order is simplification. Yes. Simplification. Black, white. No complexity in the middle. Everything is complex. It's all complex. Humans yeah. basically only do two things: we create and we destroy. Right. There's nothing else that we really do. We create and we destroy. Right. And we do it almost in equal measure. The question is, where do you put your emphasis? Are we going to create things? Are we going to destroy things? One of the points about the kind of post-Thatcher years was it was largely destructive. This is what can't be done. This is what isn't possible. Yep. This is why things must be allowed to go in this route, no matter what the, the consequences of those routes are. Yeah. Um, I think fundamentally it's more a question... I mean. Creativity, creation, of course, is, is really what is largely at the heart of this. And it's about saying, no, this is what can be done. This is what can be built and this is what can be created. Now, all of us have this. I mean, I, I'm a political strategist and one of the, uh, about trade. And one of the things that I keep saying to people during this campaign is, don't, 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 don't get up in the morning and say, how's it going? You go mad. It's impossible. <laughs> you cannot do it. Humans are far too subjective to be able to wake up every day. Because you get a good poll, hey, bad poll. No. I've done this with clients in the past. Just don't try and judge 
your progress day by day, but we can't not do it. We are complex creatures, and admitting that complexity would, would be good, would be helpful. So this idea that um, there is only two ways, that there's only two things, it, it's not actually that helpful. And there are things that have to be done and there's a no. But that said, um, what we are looking at is political creativity and political destruction. That is the nature of this campaign. It is about closing down the possibility of different futures or opening up the possibility of different futures. My biggest fear about the no vote is it does close down a lot. But the upside of this is it's not just me that's noticed that the world is more complex. Um, there are, I reckon there's probably a quarter of a million people now actively in Scotland, actively working yes. for a different direction, a different future. And the most, one of my other favourite quotes, most important quote I think for me in this whole campaign comes from civil rights activist Oliver Wendell Holmes who said a man's mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions and that's, that's the crucial thing yeah. our minds have been stretched beyond all recognition by what we have seen and what has become possible in this yes. campaign it is impossible for that to go away again and that is the act of creation which I think is most important the creation of the realisation that this isn't it the normalisation of where we are is not the end point. Yes. And when Bowie says, stay, you see, we can't stay. There's no static. Everything yes. moves and changes. We can't stay in your strange, addled, drug-addled vision, of a, <laughs> vision of, a, of, a, of a swinging, happy Britain from the 1960s, which presumably you still watch on your Austin Powers DVDs <laughs> from, from your flat somewhere in New York. Because that's not where we are now. Right. We can't stay here. Here has already collapsed. We yeah. have to go somewhere, David. And the question is where <laughs> we go. And um, we can go forward. Because yeah. so you were, somebody was talking about collapsed uh, about empires. This is, in a lot of regards, where we are living now is part modern nation state and part remnant of collapsing empire. Yes. Britain, I mean, Britain's defence policy is not the defence policy of a country. It's the defence policy of a collapsing empire. And we're stuck in the middle of this. What's delightful is that we are so far ahead of the curve in Scotland. We've identified and answered so many of these questions. In 1990, um, a bunch of the kind of Edinburgh, basically right-wing establishment, marched, because they are basically, marched onto the rugby field at Murrayfield <laughs> and stood up and sang um, Flower of Scotland as the anthem for this. That was the end of the bit where Scotland was having to deal with that identity politics. Is yeah. that you know that all, that was all over um, in the 1970s? Um, if you, someone was you're wearing a kilt, too young. Yeah. I know, but I just I can remember 1970s. <laughs> just if you met someone at a wedding that was wearing a kilt, you would assume that they were making some kind of point. Yeah. And of course, by the 1990s, if you meet someone at a wedding who's not wearing a kilt, you assume they've got bad legs. That stuff was dealt with. <laughs> that, that stuff was dealt with by the 1990s. England's only catching up. They're only catching up with those cultural questions. We've gone miles beyond that. What we're now talking about is social philosophy, the structure of society, what will we create? And again, the no campaign has lost. It doesn't matter whether they win the election or not, they've lost Scotland. We had a poll this week. 63% of working class Scotland is voting yes. And that's, that's 20, we did a poll of 18,000, well, this is camera returns from 18,000 working class communities, 63% yes, 37% no. That's the Labour Party. And um, that's their home. That's gone. That's yeah. lost. It doesn't go back anymore. So the question is, what's the change? What's the? How do we make the change happen? What does it look like? And that's where I get geek and I get detail and I say policy. We need ideas. Only ideas ever changed anything. 
Absolutely. And oh my God, I wish we could go on for much, much longer, but we can't. Um, so basically, I think my conclusion from all this is that we are being asked a digital, rather stupid question, yes, no, in an analogue, interesting world, but there are some very, very interesting answers that a stupid question has provoked. Um, and thank you very much, Robin Galpin. Just one thing, I should of course have said I was going to bring books, but they're far too heavy to carry. So um, you can get them. Allofusfirst.org is the website. They're £6. We tried to keep them as cheap as possible. You can get the book from there. Thanks, Robin McCarthy. Um We always... Uh, I, I have to say, Bowie sometimes pops by the yurt, and uh, I, I don't know, I was looking at the back, he just put his head through the door there, and he took a fair riddy when you were talking about his drug-addled <laughs> watching of the DVDs, so he's skipped off. Um, we always have a poet at Bowie's, and today we have the absolutely wonderful... Uh, Jenny Lindsay, ladies and gentlemen, Jenny Lindsay. Do you, do you need a mic? Hello, um, I'm going to do a poem. Uh, it's a wee bit different to something I would usually write. I had to write it um, for an event last week at the book festival uh, called Page Match, where. Um, Scottish poets were set up against English poets to talk about the battle for Scottish independence. And um, I was like, really? What? That is such a shit idea. Oh, my God. Um, but um, I, I'd met the organisers of it at the Latitude Festival um, a few weeks before, and, and, and they said, so how's it going in Scotland anyway? What's happening? And I was like, oh, it's brilliant. It's amazing. Oh, we've got this. We've got Radical Independence, National Collective, Commonweal. And they were like, oh, shit, we'd better do some research, you know? Um, so... Um, Anyway, uh, I was set up against the fabulous Luke Wright, um, who is a big supporter of uh, the independence campaign and the independence debate. But he has written this satirical poem called Better Together, where he takes on the kind of mantle of a sort of an earl um, and sort of tells Scotland, oh, you're so cute, don't go, all that kind of thing. Um, and I thought, do you know what? I'm not going to do something confrontational. confrontational. Well, I'm going to try not to. Some of this is quite insulting. Um, but... Um, I am going to try and respond in as friendly a way as possible. So I wrote this piece called uh, Dear England, We Need to Talk About Britain. So hopefully it kind of taps into some of the Commonwealth stuff. Who knows? Dear Earl, you'd quite like me to shh and bugger off, right? It'd be easier than talking, but we need to talk. Your pal Piers Morgan said, Scotland, you've had your fun now. Quietly vote no and we'll say no more about it. He's frickin' bang on. We're too good at not talking. But we won't be going back into our boxes like good wee shortbread soldiers. Dear England, we need to talk about Britain. We're not trying to change a tyre. We're trying to change a country. Britain's a creaking elderly gent with a walking stick, sitting in a comfy chair watching democracy die like it's a mildly entertaining TV programme, occasionally thwacking its grandkids' calls for a change of the channel. But dear England, we do not need to become better at any more temporary fixes. Dear England, we need to talk about Britain. You definitely do. Because we've been watching your news, seeing your culture hijacked by the right and you kept setting your political narrative. Dear England, you wouldn't know it, but this is not our narrative. 
and you'll be damned if it's you. Shake these bastards off, these men in quiet offices, the gap between their eloquent posturings and the consequences of their policies several miles wide. The extent of their social and moral imagination could be etched out in the back of a career politician's hotel receipt. Can I claim for this? Eggs Benedict, every time they clap their hands, a dream dies. Those sneering jesters in their Oxbridge privilege spurt their cosy juices over every sense of powerlessness on this island mass. The structure, the ideology reduced to a cockfight over house prices and owning more utter shite. This is a communal fight, England, but will take more than our five million to your 55. We are stronger, apart while keeping those social and cultural ties because your politics is not ours and our politics is not yours and this politics is barely anyone's. It shouldn't be something that just happens at us. It should be something we can shape. So let's save it from the acid bath of apathy the last 30 years have lured us into. Dear England, with some similar things to sort out, for sure, but they'll need proper representation, proper leadership and power from the grassroots up, not astroturf and sticking plasters and shutting the hell up. So stop telling us to, dear Earl. And lords and ladies and celebrities, stop with the love bombing via YouTube. You're my best friend. That's not an issue. We'll still be friends, for fuck's sake. And London-based celebs, aye, will take your actual engagement with the debate as implied. But actual England, real England, we need to talk about Britain. It's not working for any of us, this relic of empire. There are ways to be internationally and none of them are on the table. And sure, yes, we could do with eating more vegetables, maybe more sunlight, maybe less drinking, maybe more democracy, maybe more normality. And it is normal for countries to be independent. And Scotland is a country. So dear Earl, dear England, we need to talk. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jenny. Um, the poem, the Luke, the Luke Wright poem that she talked about, we had a few days ago as well. Uh, it's a fantastic poem so if you check out the podcast you can catch up on that too and even perhaps you could do a thing yourself where you play them one after the other in your own, uh, uh, for your own enjoyment so <clears throat> have you all done your sentences you'll have heard all kinds of things had all kinds of thoughts through those um, different uh, provocations um, it was a practical my practical idea to improve Scotland is um uh, just keep this now's your chance to finish them off and what we'll do is we'll collect them all now so perhaps if Sarah would go around in with the this is the bibbity bobbity hat it, um, in which you see nobody knows that reference it's a David Bowie reference in the frock coat and bibbity bobbity hat Queen Bitch that's exactly it I didn't like to say it but um, so if we put your ideas in and we'll read them out all kinds of things coming in. This is also a chance to, um, as to to sort of register any thoughts you've you've had um, in both in response to what we've said. You might have felt the stuff we've missed out, stuff we've not said, things like that. That's also a, a thing. One thing I should mention is that um, 
all of these little bits of paper are going to go to the referendum archive of the National Library of Scotland. That might seem bizarre, but actually they came along on our first day and they saw us doing this stuff with the sentences and just the bits of paper and they got really, really excited and said, please, please keep all this stuff and they'll put it in the archive. And I imagine that's because they think of people in sort of two or three hundred years' time, some sort of, you know, dusty... um, a person going through opening a dusty box trying to find out a little bit about this period of history and they'll come across these mad scraps of paper and presumably be just about as interested in what you've written on the mad scrap of paper as they are in the prices on the receipt that it's written on the back of so that's its value for the um for the referendum okay are we are we uh, just about yeah if you haven't oh if you haven't got it in the hat, don't worry, you can get it in the hat at the end as well. Okay. Yeah. So. Maybe Je- Jenny, would you like to come and join me and we'll do a sort of two voiced poem? Sure. Let's try that. Or three over here. Well, oh, I see. I, no, I was. Well, in fact, why don't you and Peter do it and I'll hand you the. All right. <laughs> okay, I think so. Okay, so, so are, are, are we going to do a verse each? Or a line uh, I, I, I think basically David passes them to us, and if we can read it, we read it. That's brilliant. So you, you pass the first one to me, and then I'll do the first one, and then you do the second one. Ready? Are we ready? So yes. my practical idea for the improvement of Scotland is? My practical idea for the improvement of Scotland is do whatever Robin McAlpine says. <laughs> <laughs> In, invest in and ensure education is world class. If public transport in Scotland was more affordable for everyone than at the moment, it is cut, cutting cultural ties. So transport, I think, is on the, on the agenda. There's a chapter on that, I believe. My practical idea to improve Scotland is a phasing in of the Cyrillic alphabet one letter per month. <laughs> That's surreal. Who, I, I, I wonder who did that. It's Cyril. Oh, that's why they pay you the big bucks, Greg. My practical idea to improve Scotland is standardised glass bottles and jars, have a sizable deposit and reuse them all. Uh, my idea is to develop a more healthy national cuisine and end all of that sugary stodge. Uh, my, my, my practical idea is to extend the tram line. Leith. My practical idea to improve Scotland is to install foot spas under each seat in Edinburgh theatres so festival goers can soothe their blisters during the show. My practical idea to improve Scotland is mostly based around bicycles. <laughs> My practical idea to improve Scotland is to build new roads into suitable highland spaces and allow the building of new communities there. My practical idea to improve Scotland is to live like cats bless my practical idea to improve Scotland is thousands and thousands of huts my practical idea to improve Scotland is move parliament into Bowie's yurt I've heard nothing but common sense here and it's badly needed crawler (laughs) my practical idea to improve Scotland is to change the voting system for all our votes to proportional representation presumably a better version my practical idea for improving Scotland is to liberate the private gardens, idea, i.g. Queen Street. Very good idea. Ooh. Controversial in Edinburgh. You could actually go to a revolution with that one. 
Oh, uh, my practical idea, get rid of the tat shops. My practical idea for it to improve Scotland is send it to England. Controversial. And my practical idea is uh, using every empty flat rooftop for growing food. Rooftop allotments, very good idea. Very good. My practical idea to improve Scotland is, uh, is open immigration for leprechauns. I think we can all have a consensus around that one. Uh, my idea is to renationalise our power grid. On the other side of this, it says Emily Sandy, and I thought that that was the better idea at first, but no, it's... <laughs> two, two more. Two more? Okay. Uh... Ah. And I, I can't quite read this one. It says N I P I F I S I. Is that someone's name? Oh, no. It says. I'll do another one. Gender gender quotas in the boardroom and parliament. Okay. It does it does say that at the top. Yeah, I was I was I was I do things in the right order. I've been trained that way. My practical idea to improve Scotland is to break it all down and start again, rebuild all. Okay, so one more to finish. My practical idea to improve Scotland is to turn Balmoral into social housing. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. So you're a revolutionary lot. And, but actually, there's some fantastic ideas in there. So I, I think in 300 years' time, they'll look back and think how many were implemented. Um, and, and they'll know that this was the first point at which those ideas broke cover. So A will be shortly to welcome back uh, Hector McInnes uh, to sing. But before that, it just remains for me to thank all of our guests today, to thank Jenny Lindsay... Uh, to thank Laura Lewis uh, to thank uh, Peter Arnott and Robin McAlpine Um, we're at Bowie's uh, we've only got two more Bowie's left tomorrow uh, we have an absolutely um, fantastic panel we have Robert Softly Gale who fought for uh, disabled access to the clubs in Glasgow the fantastic actress to, to, to nightclubs in Glasgow the fantastic actress Alison Peebles uh, and the absolutely incomparable playwright Joe Clifford are all going to be talking about independence as a way of life we also have on Saturday a really really special uh, on Sunday sorry a really really special show it's our very last show it's called It's Time to Leave the Capsule If You Dare and we're going to do an alternative national anthem sing-off um, so please come along we're going to test out a whole bunch of alternative national anthems and it's going to be a complete uh, hoot so do come along for that uh, and uh, I think check out the podcast apart from that I think if Hector's ready to go I'd say please welcome back to the stage the absolutely fantastic Hector McInnes thanks very much we've just ruined all this setup. so okay both my suggestion for a practical improvement for Scotland and my lyric reminders for the next song on almost identical looking receipts. It was a moment of great fear for me then. But 
there would be a incredibly long and nonsensical interlude in that poem followed by a very short song from me as far as I can tell my percussionist has arrived as far as I can tell they're the right way round um, so this one's possibly slightly less uh, immediately politically relevant but maybe in terms of getting on with other nationalities. There's, I come from the Isle of Skye, okay, and um, there's a place on the Isle of Skye called Staffin that has a small island called Staffin Island in the bay in front of it. And I was speaking to a couple of people last year who both had the same story, that they'd met an old man from Staffin who, who was a child during the Second World War and had watched uh, as a U-boat... As a pulled in from around the corner uh, somebody got off the U-boat in a little rowing boat, rowed onto Staffin Island in the middle of the night disappeared again and then the U-boat vanished and he thought, shit, we're being invaded <laughs> they've finally come and you know, and they're, obviously they're starting with Staffin that's, the, <laughs> that's where you'd invade first so he ran away to uh, tell everyone uh, and they were like no chance. You, you, you're making it up. Nobody believed him. Until later on, in the, I think in the early 90s, he was standing, standing there on his croft, and a car pulled up next to him, and a German man, who's a bit older than him, got out and said, you have... I, I'm, I'm not going to do the accent. Fuck it. He said, you have great water. You have great water in the well on that island. And he went, how do you know? And he said, well... I used to work on a U-boat and uh, we used to stop off and row onto Staffin Island when we were patrolling around the north of Scotland undercover to replenish our fresh water supplies. Uh, so there you go. It wasn't all bloodshed. Anyway, so the two of them had a great conversation so I thought I should write a song in which it's kind of verse-verse about the conversation between these two guys by the roadside and again during the song I shall not be doing the accent <laughs> So far and fast have I come today Won't you tell me what you've seen? 
round in the horizon What silver vessel has flashed to you its oar? What bright sail or kelp you fed On the surfer riding Where I belong We don't have such things anymore Tell you what I saw It's not what you imagine No glittering ocean Never courted then my mind Only shadows I have seen Both murderous and silent There on Staffen Island Still and biding time That was fantastic. That was brilliant. Um, thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for coming. Hope to see you in the Bowie Yurt again. Enjoy the rest of your fringe. Thanks. Bye bye. So uh, here are the sentences for the show of the 22nd of August. And the uh, sentence was, my practical idea to improve Scotland is. My practical idea to improve Scotland is to interest, to increase interest in politics, naked parliament at PMQs. I'd watch. 
My practical idea is to keep more talented people up north and attract others. My practical idea is gender quotas in the boardroom and parliament. My practical idea is to break it all down and start again, rebuild all. My practical idea is open immigration for leprechauns. My practical idea is to do whatever Robin McAlpine says. My practical idea is to move Parliament into Bowie's yurt. I've heard nothing but common sense here and it's badly needed. My practical idea is to set up your own currency that can only be spent in Scotland with independent businesses, not multinationals. This would run alongside the main currency, pound or whatever it ends up as. See the bristolpound.org for good successful example. I'm from Bristol. We have a big growing interest in the changing dynamics of local economy. My practical idea is build more houses. My practical idea is using empty using every empty flat rooftop for growing food, rooftop allotments. My practical idea is to build new roads into suitable highland spaces and allow the building of new communities there. My practical idea is to liberate the private gardens, uh, for example, Queen Street. My practical idea is the phasing in of the Cyrillic alphabet, one letter per month. My practical idea is to change the voting system for all votes to proportional representation. My practical idea is thousands and thousands of huts. My practical idea is mostly based around bicycles. My practical idea is revolutionise our power grid. My practical idea is to live like cats. My practical idea is standardise glass bottles and jars, have a sizable deposit on them and reuse them all. My practical idea is to install foot spas under each seat in Edinburgh theatres so festival goers can soothe their blisters during the show. My practical idea is extend the tram line. My practical idea is every community owning and developing lands and amenities. My collect practical idea is more discussion yurts. My practical idea is to build in collective ownership. 100,000 huts for hire by any citizen, £5 a day. My practical idea is to invest in and ensure education is free and world class. My practical idea is to develop a more healthy national cuisine end to all that sugary stodge. My practical idea is if public transport in Scotland was more affordable for everyone. At the moment it is cutting cultural ties. My practical idea is to get rid of all workers' bonuses, not just bankers. My practical idea is to abolish the monarchy and become a real republic. My practical idea is to give it back to the people. My practical idea is to ask Robin to stand for office. My practical idea is a basic income for all. My practical idea is to turn Balmoral into social housing. My practical idea is to send it to England. My practical idea is to vote yes and set us free. My practical idea is to adapt but lead the whole island. My practical idea is a cultural border check. My practical idea is make Robin McAlpine first minister. My practical idea is to bring David Bowie back. My practical idea is to keep listening. My practical idea is to get rid of the tat shops.